You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Welcome, everybody. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to go to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2, as we continue in our series that we have entitled All is Calm, um, which, as we said last week, is a pretty ironic title considering that for many of us, especially during this time of year, life is anything but calm. Uh, because we now live in this in-between stage between the first coming of Jesus, which we celebrate, but then also the groaning for the second com- coming of, of Jesus, um, we now live in this stage where for many of us, we still experience shame and pain and disappointment and loss and loneliness. And because this is true, we are basically uh, spending the month of December talking about how Jesus wants to meet us in these places. And today we're going to uh, kick off in Genesis chapter 2. But um, before we uh, get into our text today, um, just to set up our time together, I want to share with you uh, why I have chosen to teach on what I'm about to teach about, because it's actually going to be a fairly heavy topic. Um, about three weeks ago, I was on a date with my wife. Uh, my in-laws were watching our kids, and it was a great evening. We were actually shopping together. And uh, I received a call that a pastor friend of mine, Randy Sheets, had taken his own life, uh, leaving behind uh, his uh, beautiful wife and children. And um, to say I was shocked would be an understatement, because Randy is a guy... Probably more than anybody else that I know uh, who in many ways inspired me on many different levels. And uh, he inspired me as, as a, to be a better husband. He inspired me to be a, a better father. Uh, I looked up to him as a pastor. Um, I looked up to him as a soldier. He was actually at one time an army ranger. He led a platoon in the Iraq war and Afghanistan war, uh, led three different tours. Um, he was actually supposed to uh, come speak here for us in February. He lives in Washington, but he was going to come in here and speak in February and lead a men's retreat for us. And um, the first time I met Randy, uh, we were actually staying together at a nun convent, which I know sounds kind of weird. There's a backstory behind that. But um, uh, we were there with a few other pastors in Denver, Colorado, and we were building out a church planning residency for our Soma family of churches uh, all over the world. And, and whenever I left spending time with Randy, I told my wife, I was like, that's one of the most um, passionate, Jesus-loving dudes I've ever met. Uh, in fact, I even did a podcast with him about six weeks ago. Uh, it's the, called the Saturate Podcast. Some of you are familiar with it. And, and we did an episode with him where he basically just shared his own passion and love for Jesus and life. And it was a podcast. That, I mean, we listened to thousands and thousands of people all over the world. And so many people were influenced by this guy. And whenever I found out that he had taken his life, once the shock kind of wore off, to be honest, over the last few weeks, I've been surprised by how much grief has really just kind of filled my heart. And as I have been processing my grief over the last few weeks, uh, I really believe, I wasn't planning to talk about this this morning, but I really believe that God wants me to share with you just some of the things that I have been learning. Um, and though, again, this is going to be kind of a, a heavy topic, right? It's not going to be one of those we play all leave, just all like fired up or whatever else. Um, I really believe this is a topic that God wants us to talk about because I believe that he wants to do something through this message to encourage those of you 
who have experienced loss or one day will experience deep loss. And so um, with that in mind, we'll, we'll start in Genesis chapter 2, but I want to just pray for us again, and then we'll dive into it. Father, I know that in a room this size, there is a lot of hurt. There's been a lot of loss. Um, it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of year, and yet for many of us, it's, it's one of the saddest times of the year because it just reminds us um, of the things that we have lost in our lives. And so I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would arrest our attention, that you would minister to each of us uniquely, and that you would comfort those of us who mourn or one day will, in fact, mourn. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. So Genesis 2, we're going to start in verse 4. I'm reading from the NIV translation. And as always, our notes for the sermon are on the YouVersion Bible app if you want to grab those. Genesis 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now look at verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. Skip down to verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. I just want to stop it there for a moment. I want you to notice that at the climax of God's creation, he creates the first human. He creates a man named Adam and he puts him in a garden called Eden. And Eden is actually a Hebrew word that means, uh, does anybody know what Eden means? Oh, there it is. There's the answer. That's great, Don. That's all, it's all good, man. And so, uh, it means delight pleasure or paradise, which means when you think of Eden, uh, think of a place that is marked by perfect peace. Think of a place where there's no flu, right? Where there's no brokenness. There's no sorrow. There's just perfect health and vitality and flourishing and abundant life that is overflowing with joy and delight. This is the place where the first humans lived. This was their address, and yet sadly, uh, Eden did not last very long. Look at the very next line, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly what? Die. Which is exactly what happens. Uh, if you skip down to chapter 3, we don't have time to look at the whole story, but in a tragic turn of events, Adam and Eve say no to God, yes to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and as a result, in chapter 3, verse 22, we read the following, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not, therefore, be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, verse 23, the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. And so God creates Adam and Eve. Just picture this. He says, you have a choice. You can have all this stuff over here. Just do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. However, Adam and Eve, rather than denying themselves and trusting God and experiencing life, they decide to deny God and trust themselves, which leads to death. 
And if you notice, right, like, like, like it's a death of not just like a physical death, like this is a death of, of all things that were good. Right at one time, Adam and Eve had this perfect relationship with God and with one another. But now, right, there's division, there's distance, there's shame, there's guilt, there's fear, there's thorns, there's thistles, tornadoes and earthquakes. Everything from the top down is broken. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, which means paradise is lost. And if you notice, the word that is used to capture this kind of tragedy is the word death. Again, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 17, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. There will be a death of Eden, which means there is going to be a death of life as God intended for it to be. Now, the reason this is important is what this now means for us is because this is true, because we are born into a post-Eden society, all of us now, listen, all of us are born into a world of disappointment. We are now born into a world where loss is an inescapable part of our reality. Like no matter who you are or where you come from, no matter how, you, how hard you try to shield yourself or protect yourself or fence yourself in, all of us in one way, shape, or form experience loss or what God calls death. And you know, maybe for some of you, literally, this is the death of someone you love. Maybe it's the death of a parent or the death of a child or the death of a sibling, or the death of a friend, or someone you were close to. For others, maybe this is a death of a dream, or a marriage, or a relationship, or a season of life. For some of you, the loss you have experienced is a result of a miscarriage, or infertility. For others, your loss is a loss of what you hoped your parents would be, but they never were. And so your mom never said, I love you. Or your dad never paid much attention to you. They didn't go to your sporting events, or whatever it may be. For some of you, you were born into a highly dysfunctional family, which is why you dread Christmas, right? Because for you, Christmas is not about food and, 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 and 1960s, like cheesy Christmas music and presents, but it's filled with anxiety and, and hurt and frustration and therefore loss. For some of you in here, you've experienced loss as the result of abuse, whether it be physical, sexual, or verbal. Maybe for others, um, you've experienced loss because of decisions you have made, a decision to have an abortion, a decision to burn that bridge or to walk out that door, and as a result, you've experienced loss. Or maybe for some of you, your loss is not a result of all that heavy, intense stuff, but just as a result of the everyday, ordinary, normal stuff of life. So you graduated from college, and then guess what? You found out you have this thing called student loan debt, and that felt like a loss. Or maybe your dog died. Like that's sad for some people, right? Or maybe you got laid off at work. Maybe your kids have moved out of the house. Or maybe you're starting to get gray hair. Or you're losing your hair. Or maybe your favorite football team just went 2-10, and ten, right? And now you can't even get a coach if you try. <laughs> this is just the normal stuff of life. And it's just not the way life is meant to be. Right, Hogs fans? Right? And, and please... Hear me, uh, the point I just want to make this morning uh, is, is as we get started, I want you to just realize that we all experience loss in some way, shape, or form because we are born into a post-Eden world. And because we all experience loss, listen, all of us in here grieve. We grieve because this is not the way things are meant to be, and we grieve because deep down inside, we have hope for something more than the life that we are currently experiencing. And if you think all this talk about grieving our losses is just narcissistic or selfish or, or weak or pathetic, 
or not manly or too emo or whatever else, I want to encourage you to look with me to Genesis chapter 6. And I want you to see how God responds to the brokenness in the world. Look in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the humans, of the human heart, was only evil all the time. And look at this. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. In the New American Standard Bible, it says that God was grieved in his heart. In the ESV, it said it grieved God to his, to his heart. If you have the New Living Translation, it says literally it broke God's heart. And the point I just want to make this morning is, listen, despite what maybe some of you have heard, God is not a cold and calculated God who's just emotionally distant. But rather, God himself grieves over the brokenness in the world. And for those of us who are created in the image of God, we are created to do the same. This is why Sigmund Freud, who was a neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis, said this, that grief is a natural state that should not be tampered with. This is why whenever you read the Psalms, over half of the Psalms, think about this, over half of the songs are songs of lament, which means if you went to the ancient Jewish equivalent to a church service like this, over half of the songs that you would sing would be songs of lament, which means they'd be songs that are about frustration and sorrow and pain and deep grief all woven together with faith. And just one example I can give you of this is in Psalm 13. If you have a Bible, turn there, Psalm chapter 13. And if you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you. But, but listen to this. This is an example of a song of lament that would have been sung in a church service. This is from David. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Light my eyes or give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But then look at the shift. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Now, does this seem a little bipolar to anybody else? I mean... On one, and, and on one hand, he's saying, God, where are you? What have you done? My life is falling apart. If you don't show up, I'm going to die. I will sing of your praise because you have been good to me. I mean, most of us have no idea what to do with something like this. We have no idea what to do with this kind of real, raw, uncut, unedited emotion that is all over the Psalms. I think, for example, Psalm 42, where David says, tears have been my food day and night. Psalm 43, why must I go about mourning? Psalm 77, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated and my spirit grew faint. You ever done that before? You're meditating, and when you're meditating and spending time with God, your spirit actually grows faint. You kept my eyes from closing, and I was too troubled to even speak. Again, guys, these are songs. This is poetry put to music, sung in a worship service. Can you imagine if Luke was leading us in this kind of music this morning? God, where are you? I don't feel you. I feel like I'm going to die without you. Right? You've abandoned me. Oh, man. Right? I mean, it's like, it almost feels like blasphemy, doesn't it? 
It almost feels like blasphemy. And yet it's here in the scriptures. Why? Because God wants you to stop stuffing your pain. God wants you to get real. God wants you to stop trying to just fake it till you make it. Pretending like everything is fine when you know everything is not fine. I cannot tell you how many times I have sat in a counseling session with someone who started crying and then felt they had to apologize to me for their tears. God does not want you to apologize for your tears. He doesn't. Please hear me today, guys. It is not a sin to be sad. It's not a lack of faith. It is not a sin to be sad. And if you have a hard time believing that, just look with me in John chapter 11. Last place I'll have you turn. John chapter 11. And I want you to lay your eyes on Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the only perfect man who ever lived. And I want you to see how this perfect, sinless man handled death and loss in his own life. John chapter 11, we'll pick it up in verse 32. And just to set the context for you, Jesus has just lost his best friend, Lazarus. And Lazarus' sister, Mary, has come to Jesus. And we see this, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a good picture of lament. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. I would underline that, star that, circle that if you write in your Bible. Where have you laid him, Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. That word for wept, by the way, does not mean he just kind of dabbed his eye and walked on. It literally means in the original language he was dry heaving. He was riving in emotional pain. And then the Jews said, listen to this line, verse 36, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. Notice in this moment whenever approached by Mary, Jesus does not rebuke her for her bad attitude. He doesn't say, how dare you talk to me that way? I'm Jesus. Are you have any idea who I am? you have any idea what I've done for you? Show some respect. Nor does he pull out some Christian cliche, which we are often tempted to do in loss. Hey, 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 Mary, don't cry. He's in a better place. Our loss is heaven's gain. God just needed another angel. He didn't say any of that junk. None of it. But rather, what does he do? He does what all of us should do. He weeps. He goes to the place of pain, and he lets it wash over him. Which means, we need to hear this today, guys, that sometimes the emotionally healthy response in a post-Eden society is to cry. It's to grieve. It is to like Jesus to feel our losses and to grieve them. And if we can be honest, this is becoming harder and harder to do in our culture today. I was just reading this past week how antidepressants are now the highest selling drug in America. Literally, hundreds of millions are prescribed every year to try to help people numb their pain. They don't want to feel it. They don't want to feel it. And maybe for some of you, you're like, dude, pills is not my thing. Maybe for you, it's alcohol. Maybe for you, it's, it's, it's sex. Maybe it's shopping. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's working. Maybe it's weightlifting. Some of you would not dare dream of putting a chemical like alcohol or drugs in your body, but you will feel your schedules. You'll run around like crazy. You will feel your time. You'll come home and go to the shop. Right? You'll spend hours upon hours on social media or in Netflix. And listen, all for the purpose of trying to keep your mind off of your losses. And though this has become very typical in our culture, and very few people are talking about it, the reality is, every time you refuse to grieve your losses, you shrink your soul. 
and you therefore miss out on opportunities to experience the deeper life that Christ is calling you into. Um, Jerry Sitzer is a man who lost, think about this, he lost his wife, his mom, and his four-year-old daughter all in one evening because they were hit by a drunk driver. And he wrote a book on suffering called A Grace Disguised, which is basically his journals on dealing with suffering. Here's what he said. Sooner or later, all people suffer loss because we're in a post-season society, whether it's in little doses or big ones, suddenly or over time. It is not true that when we experience loss that we become less through these losses, unless, of course, we allow them to make us less, grinding our soul down until there's nothing left. Loss, sister goes on to say, can make us more. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life until it became a part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. He goes on to say, however painful, sorrow is good for the soul. Again, this is a guy, we're not talking about a dude that like, again, his wife, his mom, his four-year-old daughter. However painful, sorrow is good for the soul. The soul is elastic like a balloon. It can grow larger through suffering. This is why, listen to this, this is why we must face our losses squarely and respond to them wisely for when we do, we actually become healthier. Who talks like that? Very few people I know in our society, and yet it is a reality. And so with that being said, listen, as dangerous as it is for you to get stuck in grief, which happens for some people, it's just as dangerous for you to move on without grieving well. And so what I want to do in the time we have left is I want to get super practical because, guys, again, listen, every one of us are going to experience loss. And the time for me to teach this to you is not going to be when you lose somebody. I'm not going to show up at the hospital or the funeral home or wherever you are and start teaching you this stuff in the middle of the loss. You don't need to hear that at that point. You need to hear it now before it happens. So I want to give you eight practical tips for how to grieve your losses well. And the first thing I would say is this, is if you want to learn to grieve in a healthy way, you have to identify what you lost. Which means you need to stop and actually ask yourself, what did I really lose when my loved one died? Sometimes it seems obvious, right? Like, oh, whenever my husband died, I lost my husband. Yeah, but what did you actually lose? Maybe it was security. Maybe for some of you, it was the only person who ever loved you unconditionally. I don't know what it may be. But you've got to stop and ask, what did I actually lose when I lost that loved one? What did I really lose whenever someone picked on me at school or my parents got divorced or the kids moved out of the house or I was diagnosed with that disease? What was really loss? According to Sitzer, again, this is the first step that one must take to grieve their loss as well. And he says, like all first steps, it is the hardest and takes the most time. And therefore, to help you do that, if you are up for it this week, I would encourage you to to make what is called a loss history graph. And I think I can give you a picture of one that that I've made. And basically what you can see is if you want to do this, if you want to identify your losses, get a sheet of paper out, draw a line horizontally across it, and and, and then just begin to think about the losses you've experienced in your life, the traumatic events. And as you can see, uh, the deeper the loss, the more traumatic the event, the further down I would go on my lines, okay? And And then here's what you do is you begin to identify those, kind of write the little name beside it, whatever. With compassion and curiosity, examine those events to see how the losses are still impacting you today. Make sure you've grieved them well. Identify the loss. Secondly, once you identify the loss, this is the next thing. You need to take your loss to God. 
Because God cares for you, you need to cast your cares on him. You need to feel all of your emotions, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And rather than than stuffing them or shaming your pain, you need to take all of it, even your anger, even your frustration, all of it to God and be honest about what's going on inside of you. I was speaking with Andy Runyon this past week and several other uh, members in our church who've experienced, experienced significant loss. And Andy was telling me this was one of the most important things he did. I think, as a matter of fact, everybody I asked, so this is one of the most important things they did, was just learn that they can actually be honest with God about what's going on inside of them because he knows anyway, and that he can actually handle all of that, whatever it is. As we have said before, prayer is not a place for you to be good. Prayer is a place for you to be honest. And we see that in the Psalms. Prayer is a place for you to go to God with what is really in your heart, to share with him what you're really thinking and feeling, and not for the purpose of just having a good vent at God, but for the purpose of experiencing more intimacy with God. This is essential in learning to grieve well. Third, if you are going to grieve well, you don't simply need to take your loss to God. You need to take your loss to community. One of the most important things any, I think, psychiatrist, psychologist would tell you is when you are grieving, you do not need to grieve in isolation. You do not need to hide your grief. In the words of David Kessler, who works for hospice and is considered kind of a grief specialist, he says that grief needs a witness. Meaning that you need to actually let people know if you're grieving. You need to let them in. And you need to share with them what you are grieving so there are other people who can listen to you, support you, care for you, and remind you that you are not alone. Fourth, if we want to grieve well, listen to this, guys. We have to be patient. We have to be patient. One of the questions people often ask when they experience loss is how long is it going to take for me to get over this? And what you need to know is because grief is not a disease, grief is not something you get over as much as it's something that you just learn to live with. I was talking with Robert and Tammy Smith this week. They were sitting right here in the front row in the early service. And some of you may not know this, Robert and Tammy, they're members in our church and they lost their son six years ago. Um, Tragic. We're in the hospital with him seven, eight months, and then he died. And I was talking with him this past week about their loss, and Robert told me, he said, man, six years later, there are some days where I feel like he just died yesterday. Six years. And that is because, as Tammy pointed out to me this week, there is no time limit on grief. Some of you have been told you need to get on antidepressants because you got divorced three weeks ago. Three weeks is nothing. That is not enough time to grieve anything. Grief often takes longer than we think. And therefore, if we're going to grieve well, we have to learn to be patient in the process. Fifth, if we want to grieve well, we need to look for the good to come. We need to look for the good to come. I think of that famous line in Romans 8, 28. It's become cliche, but it's become cliche for a reason. In Romans 8, 28, Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good, those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. How awesome is that? In all things. Meaning, if you will continue to trust God, whether it be a death or a divorce or a disease, no matter what loss you experience, rather than God wasting your suffering, he will actually take all the bad things you've experienced in this life and somehow he will use it for good. This is a promise from Scripture. And that is why one of the things I would encourage you to do whenever, if you do that loss history graph, after you take time to grieve those, go back and look at that graph. And I would encourage you, think about what are some good things that I can already see that have come as a result of this tragic event. 
And you know what you'll find? Not all the times, but I bet nine times out of ten, you'll see how God has already began to take that loss and use it for good. Robert and Tammy this week, they were telling me, and some of you know this, they have adopted five children, which is kind of crazy, but also beautiful. Five children. And what Robert told me this week is there's no way they would have adopted these five children if Fletcher had not have died. Now, they don't want Fletcher. They, they, they don't wish Fletcher would have died. They still grieve it. He said that. But they can still see how God has taken something very broken and turned it into something very beautiful. And listen, he will do that for you time and time and time. Again, it is a promise. It's a promise. And he won't just do beautiful stuff around you. He'll do beautiful stuff in you. In James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. Now, this is why oftentimes the people that we respect a lot are people who have suffered a lot. Because according to James, suffering, when we let it, actually does a maturing work inside of you. Nicholas Walterstorff, who is a philosophy teacher at Yale University, lost his son in a tragic mountain climbing accident. And in his book, Lament for a Son, he writes the following. Sometimes when the cry is intense, there emerges a radiance which elsewhere seldom appears, a glow of courage, of love, of insight, of selflessness, of faith. In that radiance, we see best what humanity was meant to be. In the valley of suffering, despair and bitterness are brewed, but there also our character is made. So God will bring about good in your suffering. And if we want to suffer, we want to grieve well, we need to look for the good that is to come. Sixth, I would say this, if you want to grieve well, you need to take care of your entire person. And some of you might not like what I'm about to say, but I think this is very important. You have a mind, a body, and emotions. And because you can't separate these things, because they are integrated, you need to take care of the entire person if you want to grieve well. Which means you need to spend time in Scripture, and you need to eat healthy. Like, you need to pray, but you also need to get some exercise. Like, you need to, yes, practice all the spiritual disciplines, but you also need to get a good night's sleep. You cannot separate, guys, your physical and spiritual life. It's together. So you need to take care of the entire person. Seven, I would say this. If you want to grieve well, you need to practice gratitude. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. So that means no matter what you're going through right now, you need to stop and you need to practice gratitude. And I know that's not easy, right? It's not easy to sometimes count our blessings when all you can see is brokenness around you. But, but I think if you dig deep enough, you will always be able to find there's something to be thankful for in your life. Maybe your kid's battling a disease right now, but you can be thankful that you still have a child. Maybe you're not in the career that you thought you were going to be in, but you know what? You still have a job, and you're still able to put food on your table. Take time to practice gratitude. to say, thank you, God, for the things that I have. And then lastly, what I would say is if you want to learn to grieve well and in the process enlarge your soul, you need to remember the resurrection. You need to remember the resurrection. Let me just read this over you as we come in for a close this morning. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And just, just hear this from the Apostle Paul today spoken over your life. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Listen, 
I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, for he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One amen. One of the reasons that we celebrate Christmas as Christians is because when Jesus came to this earth, even though he came as a baby, he came as a warrior to wage war. He came to put death to death once and for all. And listen, just as Jesus Christ experienced a death, burial, and resurrection, all people who follow Jesus one day experience a death, burial, and resurrection. Which is why, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we are to grieve, but not without hope. Yes, you are to grieve. That is the emotionally mature response. To grieve the brokenness of the world. But we do not have to grieve without hope. Because listen guys, though Eden is in our past, it is also in our future. Though paradise was lost, Paradise is just over the horizon for those of you who are following Jesus. Just over the horizon. It's coming. It is a promise for those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus. Because Jesus has come and is coming again, as the prophet Isaiah proclaimed, there is coming a day, listen to this, there is coming a day when sorrow and sighing will flee away. There is coming a day where there will be no more loss, no more pain, No more cancer, no more doctor visits, no more funerals, no more divorce, no more bad days. Just the overflow of God's perfections forever. Life as it was finally intended to be. And by the way, it's actually going to be better than it was back in Eden. Because in Eden there was a tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life. But in the end, if you read in Revelation, there's just two trees of life. So there's no chance of brokenness ever entering the picture again. And so with that in mind this morning, as we transition to a time of communion, as we do every week, listen, before we all get distracted, I want to encourage you, as you come and you partake of communion, we tear off a piece of bread, which represents the body of Christ, and we dip it in the juice, which which reminds us of the blood of Christ shed for us. As you come and you partake of communion, be reminded that Jesus Christ has entered into your suffering. Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches this. God entered into your suffering and pain. He knows what you're feeling, and listen, one day he will obliterate all suffering and pain. All of it. And life will be as it should be. Remember that as you come and partake of communion today. If you are here and you are not a Christian, I want you to know, as we say often, there are not very many closed doors to you here in our church. We're so glad you're here. In many ways, if you're not a Christian, I'm more glad you're here than anybody else. So glad that you're with us this morning. But I want you to know, communion is just a time for those who have placed their trust in Jesus. It's just a symbol of hope for us. It's bread and juice we got at the store, but it's a reminder of what Christ has done and where our hope is. And so if you're here today and you're not a member of our church, but you're a Christian, we encourage you to partake of this. Two tables in the front. We have two in the back. There's a gluten-free option in my back left, your back right, if that interests you. And so we encourage you to partake of that. But if you're here and not a Christian, I'm going to be up here in the front, and I just want to know, I want you to know that I 
would have so much joy in my heart to be able to talk with you today about next steps, about what it means for you to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so if you have questions about that or want to talk about that, I'll be up here in the front. That being said, let's stand together. The band's going to come forward. We're going to partake of communion. We'll sing one more song, and then we'll be dismissed. Let's just take a moment right now and, and just in a moment of silence, just think about what you're feeling right now, not what are you thinking, what are you feeling. Maybe for some of you, you're experiencing sorrow, you're experiencing hurt, you're experiencing loneliness, you're grieving over loss that you've experienced. Maybe for some of you, honestly, you would never say this out loud, but you're grieving right now the fact that your marriage is not what you hoped it would be. The person you married is not who you thought they were. I don't know you would never say that out loud, but you need to grieve that before the Lord today. Maybe for some of you, you need to grieve the fact that your children are wayward. You need to grieve the fact that your mom and dad have divorced. You need to grieve the fact that, man, your health is failing you. Like sometimes, like I don't know about you, but sometimes I just wake up, my back's hurting. It's like all I did was sleep. How's that possible? You need to grieve the fact that you are getting older and like death is inevitable. And now let's just take our grief to Jesus. God, I thank you so much that you are here, that you care deeply about each person, that you have entered into our suffering and pain. The prophet Isaiah says that you are a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You are very well acquainted with any sort of grief we experience right now. So I pray that through your Holy Spirit that you will minister to each person and that we will feel your tender care, a bruised reed, you will not break. Some people here feel absolutely so fragile, so weak, that they're about to break. And I pray they'll feel your gentle touch this morning, that you will comfort us, Holy Spirit. Fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the suffering servant who has come to do away with suffering once and for all. And it's in your name we pray.